The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. We are Gerald and Kathy Cornelson, and we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 33, verses 7 to 23. It was Moses' practice to take the tent of meeting and set it up some distance from the camp. Everyone who wanted to make a request of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, all the people would get up and stand in the entrance of their own tents. They would all watch Moses until he disappeared inside. As he went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and hover at its entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. When the people saw the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would stand and bow down in front of their own tents. Inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Afterward, Moses would return to the camp, but the young man who assisted him, Joshua, son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. One day Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name, and I look favorably on you. If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me on me and on your people if you don't go with us. For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. The Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you and I know you by name. Moses responded, Then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will call you out and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, Look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Gerald and Kathy, for reading the scripture to us this morning. Hallelujah. Um, It's good to be together this morning and to be able to uh, have a few more people in the building. That is wonderful. Uh, just a handful, but uh, we look forward to better days. And um, just before I begin my sermon, I want to uh, draw your attention to uh, the screen. Uh, Far Corners Ministry is a partner in a mission with us. And of course, uh, they serve mostly in India. And Shant and Ginny Manuel live in eastern Canada, but uh, their colleagues live over in India and are boots on the ground. And We know that uh, this COVID-19 pandemic has really affected India, and uh, we received a letter not too long ago from Shant and Ginny describing the need for food distribution especially, and so uh, we have decided as a church we want to help them, 
But we will not be offering receipting through our church. We will offer receipts. Uh, they will offer receipts through Far Corners Ministry. And if you go to our webpage, you will find right on our webpage, there's a little tag that says current news and announcements. And under current news and announcements, you'll see this screen, Far Corners Ministry giving during COVID-19. And you can click on that and you'll see all the information that you need to send a donation that will help the people in India with uh, the food distribution. So uh, all, all monies that they receive on this project will go directly to the food distribution. So uh, remember that if, you, if God puts that on your heart. <clears throat> Let's pray together. And Father, now as we, we think of this very need that I've just mentioned, the pandemic, uh, Lord, all around the world, there are still places that are hot spots where people are dying and um, varying degrees of, of people being vaccinated and, and uh, being helped. And uh, God, we pray. We pray for the suffering that is going on. We know that your heart is a heart of compassion. And uh, we, we ask you, Lord, to move by your hand and to cause this to stop and to return um, health to this world, to this earth. Oh God, would you be merciful? And would you awaken your church to all of the messages that we are meant to receive and understand through this past year and a half, but also the message that we're meant to carry to this world that is lost without Jesus. And we pray for Far Corners Ministry that you will bless uh, all donations and all distribution of food and may it accompany the gospel as it goes forth. Father, as we turn our attention this summer to the subject of prayer, uh, Lord, we ask you to deepen our understanding, but more than that, deepen our experience of prayer and our encounter with you in prayer. Oh, Father, uh, I feel so very ill-equipped to speak on this subject. I feel somewhat unauthorized who can speak on prayer uh, with great authority? Uh, Lord, we all wrestle with this privilege of communing with you, the Holy God, bringing requests to you, interceding on behalf of this world. Father, would you teach us? Holy Spirit, would you help us? And uh, we give you the praise, Jesus. For you, we know, are interceding on us, on our behalf right now. And so lead us, God, as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this summer, we're embarking on a journey in prayer. And we're going to have 10 Sundays starting today. We're going to be looking at the life of Moses and uh, a prayer, a sliver in his life. And then uh, we're going to end on Labor Day weekend when we look at the Apostle Paul and and in that span of time, we're going to be looking at eight different men of the Bible in prayer. And we're going to be looking at two different women of the Bible in prayer, Hannah and Mary. And I've asked two women from our church to cover those messages on those two Sundays so that we have a woman presenting about the woman's prayer life in the scriptures. Prayer is one of those subjects that has a whole span of emotion attached to it. Prayer is one of those subjects that 
when we ask someone, how's your prayer life, you could get various responses. And I think we can feel a whole range of emotions because we're often at different places in our prayer life depending on how we're doing. We could feel perhaps guilt when we mention the subject of prayer because we don't feel very adequate in praying or we feel that we have not been very faithful. And so the prayer climate could be feeling like a little bit of duty boundness. We could feel somewhat indifferent to prayer because we, we experience that whether we pray or we don't pray, our world just goes on the same. My life is the same. We could have that attitude sometimes. We could look at prayer and we could have a sense of indifference. We could have a sense of duty. We could also have a sense of delight. There are times when prayer is just an incredible moment of real communion with God. And then there's times when we just feel a desperation and we're driven to prayer because of trials and difficulties and God is our lifeline. He's our refuge. We run to him. We don't leave home without prayer because we realize that we need, we need a safe place. And so I've experienced all this range of emotion. I've experienced guilt and duty and desperation and delight and I've experienced indifference in prayer, and maybe you have too. And I'm hoping that this summer, as we cover the range of people that we're going to be covering, that maybe God will help us to understand the heart of prayer, the spirit of prayer, and maybe we'll be able to even get rid of some of the baggage we have. I think we all have baggage. And um, the... Uh, sorry, I'm getting... Thank you. <laughs> I think we all have baggage, and um, I like this. I found this on the internet. It says, you've got baggage, I've got baggage, we've all got baggage. Unpacking your past to improve your present. The reason I put that up there is because I think that we come to the subject of prayer with baggage. And you might liken it to maybe carry-on baggage, like you're getting on a flight and you've got carry-on baggage. You ever seen someone that got so much carry-on baggage they, they can hardly function? I think sometimes we're like that in prayer. We got a lot of stuff. Then there's the stowaway baggage. There's stuff that isn't seen, but maybe we carry into our prayer room, into our prayer life, a whole bunch of stuff that's sort of tucked away. Nobody sees it, but it really hinders our journey in prayer. It really hinders how we approach the Father. I think we all got baggage, and uh, I'm hoping that this summer we're going to be able to see some of our baggage, unpack it, leave it alone, leave it aside, and have uh, the ability to walk with God more, more cleanly. And I think we're going to start today with Moses. Now, I could have chosen all kinds of different uh, scenarios with Moses. Uh, I could have thought about um, the time, for example, when he's at the burning bush. Incredible moment in Moses' life. And God calls him to go and rescue his people. He says, take off your sandals, you're, you're on holy ground. I could have chosen the time when, remember, on the mountain and Joshua's down in the valley and they're fighting the Amalekites and J Moses is up on the mountain and Aaron is on one side and hers on the other and they're holding his hands up in prayer. And when he's praying with his hands up, they're winning the battle and when he's not, they're not winning the battle. I could have chosen the very last moment of prayer in Moses' life when he goes up that mountain and God enables him to look across the valleys to the promised land, but he's not allowed to go in. But I chose to look at a scripture this morning, just one sliver of a time perhaps at the Israel's lowest point in history, 
and uh, look at the prayer life that, that uh, evolves out of that. And so <clears throat> I think that prayer, <clears throat> as I say in the next slide, I think sometimes we are driven to prayer. I think sometimes we pray because we're drawn to prayer. And I think sometimes we pray because we delight in prayer. And so driven to prayer, drawn to prayer, and delighting in prayer. Let's think about the lessons that we have to learn from Moses. I'd like you to advance to the next slide. <clears throat> and we're going to be looking at Exodus 32 and 33 <clears throat> if you have your Bibles with you. And I'm going to start right away with the first one, lessons on prayer from Moses, prayer that drives us to God. I'm going to pick up the story in chapter 32, not read to us this morning. And it's at the lowest point in Israel's history. They have experienced a, a huge spiritual setback. They've, it took less than 40 days, because that's how long Moses was gone, 40 days. In chapter 20 of Exodus, we read about how God gave Israel the law up on the mountain. He gave them the two stone tablets. The Ten Commandments were on that, that, that rock. But in one act of rebellion, they broke three of those commandments. And some of the gold that they actually brought out of Egypt that was meant to be used in the tabernacle that they were going to build in the wilderness, well, instead they built a golden calf, an idol. And we, we read about that in chapter 32. So while Moses is on the mountain in this moment with God, God stops the moment and says, go back down there because your people have been corrupted by an idol. And uh, so Moses goes down, <clears throat> and he finds out that they have indeed been disobedient to God. I want to read chapter 32 and verses 11 to 14. Listen to what is said. It says, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why? Should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit forever. And the Lord, it says, relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. You see, God was ready to wipe out Israel and start over with Moses. And Moses goes to God in desperation. In other words, he was driven to God. He was driven to God because he was so desperate. He didn't know what else we could do. And so sometimes I think that is the kind of prayer that we pray. In fact, I think it's often the kind of praying we do. We are driven to God because we are desperate. We don't know where else to turn. We're hurting. And so think about this. Israel had left Egypt as slaves. They had taken some gold and silver that they had taken from Egypt, but now they were in the wilderness and they depended on God every day for manna, for quail, for water. And now they have been encamped at the base of Mount Sinai, we think, for about 10 months. And again, God has been providing for their every need. God has Israel exactly where he wants them. In a place, a dry and weary land where they are dependent on God. 
And yet even in that place, they could find a way to disobey God. They could find a way to fashion a different idol and try to depend on it rather than God. Isn't that a, isn't that a commentary on the human heart? That though God sometimes in his mercy, a severe mercy, puts us in a dry and weary place and God has us exactly where he wants us, though we would never put ourselves there, though he puts us exactly where he wants us for the sake of him, us growing in this dependent faith on him, even in that place, we're able to sin against God. We're able to fashion idols and try to depend on something, someone other than God. You see, how did that happen? Well, you just remember that Israel had been in Egypt for over 400 years. Generation upon generation had been influenced by the polytheism, the many gods, false gods of Egypt. And the whole, the law had not come they had only oral tradition and teaching down from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. And they'd been influenced by the polytheism of Egypt. And what does polytheism do? Well, it, it says that, well, if your God ever lets you down, there's always another one. You see, if God isn't enough, then we'll, we'll make a God. We'll figure it out. That's the way secular humanism teaches us to live as well. There's always some way that will gratify you, fulfill you, help you. But what does monotheism do? What does Judeo-Christian belief do? It says all your eggs are in one basket. There's nowhere else to turn to. God is enough, it says. I think we can all identify with this. Because we all have our poison we go to. We all have our counterfeit gods we go to. We all have our idols. We all have the ways that we sustain ourselves. Listen to, listen to a quote from Timothy Keller in a book called Counterfeit Gods. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you, if anything becomes more fundamental than God, listen to this, to three things. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, to your meaning in life, and to your identity, it is a God. It is an idol. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, to your meaning in life, and to your identity, it has become an idol. And I, I read that and I just say, guilty as charged. Do not all of us have somehow ways we turn to find happiness, to find meaning and fulfillment and identity. And the thing that's really, really, really fascinating is that when we turn to God, when we identify that idol, when we identify this thing that we're looking to for all the fulfillment that God wants to provide, and we go to God and bring it to him, he welcomes that prayer. You see, the point of my first point is that, is that God welcomed Moses coming into his presence desperate, driven to prayer, and God welcomes our prayers that are driven to him because of our desperation but our prayer lives will not deepen 
And our intimacy with God will not deepen if we continue to entertain other sources of happiness, meaning, and identity from other false idols. So we need to keep short accounts with God. We need to go to God. He welcomes the prayer of desperation. And uh, it flows out of a sense of need for God. There are many things that can lead you to this kind of praying of driven prayer. It is stress of life, anxieties, fears, broken relationships, financial hardships, a guilty conscience, shame. There's so much, and God welcomes it. The next kind of prayer that I want to talk about is prayer that draws us to God. And in the scripture that we are looking at, in chapter 33, in verse 7, we're told about a place called the Tent of Meeting. The Tent of Meeting, later called the Tabernacle, the Tent of Meeting was the place just outside of the camp where all Israel and all their tribes and families lived. And when Moses would get up and his little friend Joshua would be right behind him, and they would go out to the tent of meeting. All Israel would stand at the, gate, at the door of their tent, and he'd go in, and they'd wait. And, and Moses would commune with God there. It says in the scripture in verse 11, as the children's ministry uh, minute uh, reminded us of, he would commune with God as a friend face to face. In verse 12, we're told of one of those intimate conversations that Moses had with God. We witness what starts maybe as a desperate prayer, a driven prayer, becomes a time of being drawn into prayer. Let's take a look at it in chapter 33 and verse 12. Let me read to you again. Chapter 33, verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, You say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. In, chapter, in earlier times, he had said that he was going to send an angel with them to go up to the promised land. God was still going to complete his promise to give them the land of Canaan, but he wasn't going to go with them. He was going to send an angel ahead of them. So Moses prays this, and he says, You have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you in order that I may find favor in your sight. Consider this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if you, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And then the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight. You see, Moses is saying, if you're not going with us, I'm not going anywhere. We are staying right here in the wilderness. You see, now this desperate prayer has been turning into more of a drawn-to-God prayer. And it's God's presence that matters more. He doesn't want to go and do anything it changes from an SOS call to a, a communing with God. Lord, I want you. Show me your ways that I may find favor with you. Verse 15, if your presence will not go, we're not going. This is prayer that I think is drawn to God himself. Not what God might do for you, but God himself. And it's not, it's not enough that an angel might go with them. So Moses. Now look at verse 4 of chapter 33. 
It says that when they heard this disastrous word that God wasn't going to maybe go with them, all of Israel mourned and they stripped themselves of all their ornaments. These are ornaments they got from Egypt. These are the idols that they were talking about. These were the things that were getting in the way of them having a relationship with God. We all have our ornaments, don't we? And they stripped their ornaments away when they heard that they might lose their God to go with them. You know, maturing in prayer, you know you're maturing in prayer when not just the thing that you're asking God about is important, but God himself becomes important. We know we're growing in prayer. And um, I was reading in a, a devotional that I read uh, called Solid Joys a couple days ago, Friday, the 2nd of July, and it said this, it, it is astonishing how little effort in this world is put <clears throat> into knowing God. And when I read that, I thought, man, that's so true. It is astonishing how little effort in this world is put into knowing God. I, I'm not, I don't think the, the author is just talking about the non-Christian world, secular world. I, I think it's also talking about us as Christians. How little effort we put into just knowing God. And I think that um, as we know him more, we start to realize we're drawn to him. Which leads to our third point, and that is that prayer actually delights in God. Moses takes us further in this scripture. In chapter 33, verse 18, he steps into what I think is almost unthinkable in the Hebrew mindset, in the time of the Old Covenant especially. He, Moses asked God to show him his glory. He said, uh, and God responds, he says, I'll make all my goodness pass in front of you. Look at verse 19. It says, God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But my face you cannot see, for no man shall see me and live and the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and where my glory will pass by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away, and you shall see me, my back, but my face you shall not see. I wonder how we are to understand this. I think as best as we can understand it, this encounter with God on the mountain was the most unique encounter that Moses or any man to that date has had with God. Even when Moses in, is in the tent of meeting and it says that he met with God face to face as with a friend, I don't think it's saying literally face to face because as this scripture has reminded us, no man can see God face to face in his unbound, unfiltered glory and live. And so it was describing simply an intimacy of communion that was rare for any human to that point. But this encounter in chapter 33, 19, this encounter was unique. Moses was allowed to see the backside of God. And that in itself, he had to still be hidden in the cleft of a rock because God would be an all-consuming fire. And in God's mercy, he hides him so that as the holy passes by, as the glory passes by, Moses is only allowed this closer intimacy with God 
yet protected. Protected. I was speaking with Erica and Sean this past week in the office about the sermon. And Erica shared with me that someone at Camp Nudemick a few years ago was talking about the glory of God, trying to define what glory means, what the glory of God is. And they said that the glory of God is all God's attributes on full display. So you can think about all the attributes, the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God on full display. It's, it, it's breathtaking. It's mind-blowing. It's, we can't even begin to imagine this God that we know. It's a description of what Moses experienced in a, just a little sliver, protected, veiled, mediated way a sliver of the glory of God. Now, being believers on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ, we have an advantage. And one of the advantages comes in Paul's letter to, the, to Corinthians, the second letter, chapter 3 and verses 12 to 18, where Paul is talking about how then when Moses would leave the tent of meeting, He'd had to have a veil over his face because of the glow of God, the glory of God that was being reflected on his face, and Israel couldn't look at him. And, and so, in a similar way, Paul takes up that theme in verse 18, and he says, But we, we new covenant believers, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So the word transformed, metamorphosis, is this idea of being changed in our essence from the inside out. In the old covenant, the change took place from the outside in. It was the law written on tablets of stone by the finger of God and then given to Israel. Now, Israel, obey. And Israel couldn't obey, and neither can you and I. But Paul says, no, in the new covenant way, where Jesus Christ has come, where the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the believer, now it's the Holy Spirit writing the law of God on our human hearts. And the change is from the inside out. That's how God changes us. And so the scripture, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3, has this wonderful dance that says, as we behold, he transforms. We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed one degree of glory to another. As we behold, God transforms us. We grow in the image of those we love. And so by this close intimacy with God in prayer, we behold him more, we're changed more, we become more like God. His thoughts become more our thoughts. The things that repulse him we are repulsive to us. The things that he loves, we start to love. The attitudes he has, the heart, the motives. And pretty soon, as we continue to behold the Lord, being transformed by the Lord, other people start to see some of the glory of God in us. Just little slivers of the glory of God. In some one of these many attributes that God has in him, we begin to 
demonstrate those attributes. Now, I want to ask you for a moment. I want you to think of someone that demonstrated to you an attribute of God that impacted you. It was a sliver of God's glory, of godliness upon a person. Just one person. I just want you to think of one person today. And it might have, it might have been that you saw in them this incredible selflessness, servant heart. It might have been that you saw in this person this incredible rock-solid commitment to truth and courage to be unpopular in standing for truth. It might have been this gentle, sweet spirit that you couldn't quite define, but it, it just was always upon that person. It might have been an incredible patience, even when wronged, to just be forgiving. To see the best in somebody else. I want you to think of one person that demonstrated one sliver of the glory of God. And I want to tell you something about that person. That that person got that way through prayer that beheld the glory of God. And they were transformed by beholding God in intimacy in prayer. And they probably moved from a, a prayer that was driven to prayer to the prayer that was drawn to prayer to the prayer that began to delight in God in prayer. So think about this now. Um, I want you to think about being driven to God in prayer. When was the last time something drove you to prayer? You just had to unload on God. You had to, you were feeling overwhelmed with responsibilities, expectations, guilt, shame, whatever it was. God invites that prayer. It says in Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. God just has an open invitation. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. And then it says, and you shall glorify me. We glorify God when we get to the day of trouble and the God we turn to isn't that one or that one or that one, but the real true and living God. That glorifies God. Because God says, I'm glad you came to me. I'm glad you didn't turn to that or this. I'm glad you came to me. When was the last time you were driven to God? That's a good thing. Go to God. Cast your cares on him, he cares for you. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest, Jesus says. Next, I want you to think about the last time you were drawn to God in prayer. I mean, you just felt you had to go and tell God something. You're just drawn to him. It might have been while you were driving down the road. It might have been in the middle of a shift at work. It might have been in the shower. I don't know, but you were drawn to God. You just had to talk to God. You were not desperate for God. You're not, you're not feeling desperate. You weren't feeling in trouble. You were not in trouble. You were not confessing sin. There was no desperate need driven to prayer. You were just drawn to prayer. You see the difference. You were not at the end of your rope. You just had to talk to God. And God met you. He just loved it that you came to him. You might have been filled with gratitude. You might have been 
seeing an answer to prayer. You might have been responding to something he taught you in the word recently. It says in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? May God give us that spirit of prayer. James 4.8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. That's what it says. And then thirdly, I want to suggest, when, were, when was the last time that you delighted in prayer, delighted in God? Maybe there haven't been too many times in your life. But maybe it was because you saw God at work in someone you just so love and you just marvel at his grace to, to get a hold of them. Maybe it was because one day you thought that you were expecting judgment and, and discipline from God and him being harsh. Instead, he just showed mercy and kindness to you. And you started to delight in God. Sometimes that happens. Who is a God like you? Micah 7:18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? Or Psalm 63. Psalm 63 says, You, O God, are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and I've beheld your power and glory. And because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I'm just drawn to delight in God. This morning as we get ready to share the Lord's table around gather around this table. I want to I know, are you driven to the table because you've seen your sin and because you've seen that God in his mercy through Jesus Christ has met you, has provided a way, a redeemer, and you know that his blood was shed for your sin. And so you're driven toward this table to do this in remembrance of him. Are you drawn to the table are you drawn to the table by the risen Christ, the living God, Jesus himself, who says, come, come to me. Partake of the bread and the cup because I, I want you to remember this is, this is the rock-solid foundation that your relationship with the holy God is built on. Come to me. Take of the bread and the cup. And would you delight in this table as well? In God as he is demonstrated the fact that this table is just a small a small precursor to the table that he's preparing in heaven where we'll sit down with the lamb of god jesus christ and so let's prepare our hearts to to receive the table of the lord the bread and the cup for those of you who are in this room in the back corner there are cup and bread and as we sing a song would you go and Pick up uh, some bread and cup and go back to your seat and wait for us to partake together. And if you're online, would you take this song as well as a moment to go and to get some bread and uh, some juice perhaps and come back and let's partake of the meal together. Amen. Amen. You know, as we uh, come to the table this morning, um, we're not asked to bring anything to this meal. <laughs> this isn't a potluck. We're asked to just come as we are. And uh, 
the Lord is so merciful because he has furnished everything we need when we come to him. There's no contribution that we make to our salvation, to our spiritual food. God provides it all by his word, in his son, through his spirit. But we are asked when we come to the table, we are asked to to take inventory of ourselves. This becomes like a spiritual checkup, doesn't it? And this morning as I was in prayer and thinking about my own walk with God and my own partaking of the bread and the cup this morning, the Holy Spirit, I think, put his finger on two areas of my life this past week. I think I watched too much TV this week. I really did. I, I, I think I watched too much television. Time that could have been spent doing something else. And some of it wasn't even that edifying. And I also think that I, I actually ate too much junk food this week. <laughs> and you know what junk food does to you? Junk food ruins you for good food. And I think it's kind of a, a metaphor of what we see at the table here. Here is real food. Real spiritual food comes through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Come to me. And yet we can so easily trash ourselves and fill ourselves with junk food. Other spiritual pursuits, other soul, supposedly soul-satisfying, soul-filling pursuits, but not, not at all satisfying. I don't know where you're at this morning, but this is a moment when we have to just come before God in prayer and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry. I confess that this has been too much of my week. This has been too much of me. I have not done this enough. These have distracted me. That has robbed me. Let's come to God now, and I'm going to give you a moment of silence just to pray before we partake of the cup and the bread. Our God, our Father, we don't want to come to the table and just make it a a routine. God, we don't want to come in any falsehood. And so we bring ourselves to you as we are. We have nothing to offer you except our honesty and our confession and our vulnerability. And we thank you that you welcome that. You welcome us. And that you understand how weak we are, how frail and feeble we are in our efforts to obey you. We bring our confession, Jesus. It sounds different in each home, in each heart, but you receive it, Lord Jesus, because you are already interceding for us and Holy Spirit, you're interceding too. You're groaning our confession out right now. Ways that words can't express, perhaps. But we come in contrition. We come 
in sincerity. And we come asking Jesus that you might again remind us by taking this bread and by taking this cup, you'll remind us that our whole relationship with you, our rightness with you, has been accomplished through what you did, Christ, at the cross. And we're so thankful. We're so grateful. And Lord, in the middle of the day when we forget, just remind us, O oh Lord, of that incredible love that you laid down your life for us. We thank you now for the bread, and we thank you, Lord, for the cup. And we partake of it with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you join me now and partake of the bread and the cup and be thankful? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Amen. God bless you. God, we thank you so much for who you are, Lord. And we thank you for loving us no matter what. And God, I just pray that in our desperation that we would come to you and that we would draw close to you, Lord. And in, in those times where we need you the most, that we would, we would really draw to you, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.